I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, foreign correspondent Michaela Ron on Covering Africa and her debut novel, Borderlines. Michaela Rong is a distinguished international journalist who has worked as a foreign correspondent covering events across the African continent for Reuters, the BBC and the Financial Times. She writes regularly for Foreign Policy magazine and The Spectator as well. Based on her experiences in Africa, in the footsteps of Mr Kurtz, her first book won the Penn James Stern Prize for non-fiction. Her book, I Didn't Do It For You, focuses on the African nation of Eritrea and it's our turn to eat, tells the story of John Githongo, a Kenyan whistleblower. Borderlines is her first novel, and that's what we're going to be talking about in the main today. Michaela, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. But before we talk about Borderlines, I want to talk about Africa a bit more generally, so we'll touch on the non-fiction books that I've just mentioned as we go along. So why Africa, first of all? How did you end up covering Africa? It wasn't only Africa. People don't know, but I did have a life before I started writing about Africa. I was a Reuters correspondent, joined Reuters straight out of university. And in fact, my first postings were to Italy, Mm -hmm. to Rome, and to France, to Paris. And uh, I really loved those postings, had a great time, and did a lot of um, interesting things, like I ended up doing fashion reporting and the Cannes Film Festival, lots of elections, there were a lot of hijackings going on, terrorism was a big issue in some of those stories. But then the third posting happened to be Ivory Coast, Mm -hmm. and and that began, you know, very quickly you become a so-called expert, you know, it only takes a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I did, uh, I was in Abidjan, then uh, I left Reuters briefly, went back as a stringer in Kinshasa, Chassa in uh, in what was then Zaire, mm. and so by that stage, you know, you're becoming an expert, and so it just became, you know, one thing led to another. But it's like a, it's a huge continent. It does, yes. you know, barely needs saying. Or you've already named like four or five different countries that are sort of very, very different. That whole idea of, as you said, you sort of said quite flippantly, you quickly become an expert, yes. like the go-to person for the sort of yes. Western media to cover. Yes, that, I mean, I think that's can be an issue, can't it? It, it is an issue, and it's, um, it's ridiculous at, at times, because quite often you'll be rung up by a radio station because they know you're here in London mm-hmm. and you're on their contacts list, and they'll say, you know, will you come in and talk to us about Angola? Something's happening yeah. in Angola. Will you come in and comment? Will you come and talk to us about uh, your Burkina Faso or Mauritania? And you've got to say, look, I was in Angola 
25 years ago mm-hmm. or I, you know, I, I've never been to Togo uh, or uh, Benin, you know, interesting place, but I've never actually been there. Uh, and for them, yeah, it's all Africa, so you're just an expert. And I really try not to do that. I mean, I, I, I have some friends who I think are a bit lax and they'll go in and they'll mug up and go in and, mm-hmm. and be the instant expert on any African place. And you kind of think, no, I'm just going to go in if I feel I've got something pertinent and I do know what I'm talking about and this is a story that falls into my area of expertise. So I, I often do say no, because I think you just have to show some, some respect for the place mm-hmm. and its history and also your reputation, because you can just say some really stupid things. Well, having, having said that, I'm going to next generalise massively <laughs> and say, what is it about, what's the appeal of Africa for journalists? People always describe Africa, and it's a massive cliche, but people say, oh, Africa, it gets under your skin, and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I always get really annoyed by that, because I think, you know, what drew me to Africa was it was professionally very rewarding, mm-hmm. and, and this idea that you have to go there and fall in love, and sort of like, oh, once you've been, you can never, you, you know, you can never leave, you always go back. I do think it's nonsense. I think it's a very rewarding place to work in many ways, because, you know, a lot of the stories you cover lack that sort of layers upon layers upon layers of PR mm-hmm. that are basically in Western uh, societies and economies they get between the journalists and the story. People who are, are basically paid to teach people how to lie to journalists or, or produce press releases. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you'll often not witness something yourself or not get to talk to someone. It's all done over the phone and it's in the form of glorified press releases. Mm-hmm. In Africa, I mean, it's getting less true now as the internet spreads and everyone now is... Uh, on on broadband and everyone's on the phone. But, you know, when I first was going out to Zaire in 1994, if you didn't see something happen yourself, you really couldn't write about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a lot of it was about first-hand testimony. Sure. And that's tremendously rewarding. I mean, it just feels like real journalism. And, you know, you're speaking to people, you're seeing mass migration, you're seeing violent events in front of you, and then you can talk about it. But, you know, there won't be a hack. There won't be a press spokesman. There won't be a, a minister who knows how to fob off the media. It's just a much more direct... And that's very rewarding for a journalist. How do you, for those sort of countries, how do you, I guess, interest the media, the newspapers, in those stories? I mean, there are places, not going back to them, but looking at now, there are places in Africa, everybody cares about... Islamism. So the news will be full of Boko Haram or it will be full of Darfur, or, but not necessarily the Congo, which is the, you know, the, the subject yeah. of the first book that we'll get onto. Is it difficult to, to, to yeah, make people interested? That is the massive challenge and it's terribly frustrating because, for example, when I worked for the Financial Times, I shared a page with the Middle East. <laughs> And you can be sure that if there was a big story in Israel or Lebanon or Jordan or Iraq, you know, then Africa was knocked off the page. Mm-hmm. And that happened day in, day out. And of course now, you know, there's websites, there's more space, so you get your bit. But one of the problems for the journalist who's working in Africa is because economically, uh, you know, the, the, the stories are, are tiny. Mm-hmm. You know, I was working for the Financial Times. There are very, very few African companies that merit much attention from a newspaper like the Financial mm-hmm. Times. They're just not in the same league as something like Walmart, you know, or, or, or Esso or Shell, mm-hmm. you know. So um, it, it's really, you can't compete. And then the stories that do compete tend to be disaster stories. And then you get that, you're then opened up to that, that criticism, which is, well, you only tell disaster stories. There's this cliched vision of Africa as the sort of continent of war and poverty and plague. But the problem is that the more nuanced stories are not of significance enough 
in economic terms or sometimes in political terms. I mean, you know, how much attention has been dedicated to events in Eritrea. I've been trying to get Eritrea into the news for the last 10 years, and I've gone repeatedly to the Guardian, to other newspapers, and said, you have to write about what's going on in Eritrea. Mm -hmm. And it's only now that we've got migrants that are turning up in Calais, and so many of them happen to be Eritrean, that people are saying, what on earth is going on in Eritrea? But it took that. It had to impinge upon us, and it had to impinge upon Western awareness in a very negative way before Mm -hmm. anyone shows any interest. But, you know, you could go as many times as you liked to The Guardian or another newspaper and say, this is really important. And they would go, well, you know, it's a country of six million people, and no one can get in, no one can get a visa. And you just... There was no interest. Well, interestingly, you mentioned working for the Financial Times, and then they're not necessarily being financially based stories coming out of Africa. But of course, you also mentioned Shell there, a company that you know famously has quite a baleful presence in various parts of Africa. And again, getting onto Zaire and the Congo, this is a place where the things that are in all of our electronics and stuff comes from. It is somewhere that has a massive financial interest for the West, but it's just not something we really tend to talk about. The thing is, a lot of that's potential interest. And, of course, that's changing because Africa is getting more prosperous and, you know, there's the rise of the middle class. But, you know, I don't know what the figure is now, but up until a few years ago, I think the figure that people used to compare the GDP of the African continent to the Mm -hmm. GDP of Belgium. It's wonderful talking about mineral potential... Mm -hmm and uh, oil in the ground and and, and yes, Africa is rich with timber and oil and hydroelectric power but a lot of its potential and the problems and risks of investing remain constant and so I think uh, that's why it it remains, you know, the coverage has not never been there. I mean it is, that is changing now but it still comes a very poor second to a lot of other areas of the world. Well I want to bring us on to the first book then, so In the Footsteps of Mr Kurtz which was about the, the sort of transition of Zaire. And of course, like, coming right up to the present day, it's, it's those, the fight over those sort of minerals is one of the reasons why the Democratic Republic of Congo, as it is now, is in such dire straits, really, isn't it? Yeah, well, there was a transition. I mean, it was started off with rubber, and that was King Leopold's... Mm-hmm. Um, because rubber, you know, was used to make tyres, and it grew wild in, in uh, what was uh, Congo uh, originally... Um, And so that was the great resource that was ruthlessly exploited by King Leopold of Belgium. And then during, you know, his his reign, that became, we moved into the new era of of, uh, minerals and copper, and the Belgians realised how much lay under the soil in terms of very important minerals, because, you know, technology moves on and they become the things that everyone wants. So tell us about your experiences in, in Zaire, as it was. The strange thing about living in Kinshasa, and I only lived there a year, but then I was going back there a lot to report on events, is, is I really, really enjoyed living there. I just, it, it was, uh, I was very, very happy there. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't have any of the ghastly experiences that sometimes journalists in particular seem to experience. But I do think that, uh, you know, I think the great, um, if you live in a place where government is dysfunctional and potentially very oppressive, mm-hmm. uh, often what you find is the relationships with people. I really make up for it, and uh, people help each other. Mm-hmm. And there was this great camaraderie, and and this um, article 15, article fifteen, which was the whole principle by which people operated, which is something I think we all respect and admire in people we see around it, which is this sort of like just do it yourself. Yeah. You know, the state's not going to do it. Uh, there was no dependency culture. No one ever thought they were going to get any benefits, any money out of the state. They never paid the taxes either. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the system 
is messed up, totally dysfunctional, completely corrupt, completely chaotic. So you have to do it on your own and uh, sort yourself out. Fend for yourself. That mm-hmm. was the motto. And uh, there was something quite uplifting about that. And it meant that the edge of kind of sadness and the sinister side of, of Congo was sort of compensated for. But I do, I do think while I was living there, there was always a sense that things could go very wrong very fast and that you were always kind of waiting for that potentially to happen. Mm-hmm. I re- remember my parents came out to visit me when I lived there for a short holiday, and I had encouraged them to come, but I, I was so tense all the time that they were visiting me, because you just sort of thought, just one nasty incident would mm-hmm. be all it would take, and that this would you know, be very, very unpleasant. Um, I mean, if you live in a country where you would never turn to a policeman yeah. uh, and ask for help in a crisis, and in fact you see every man who's wearing uniform, whether it's a police uniform or a soldier's uniform, as a real threat. You know, I think it just colours your whole vision of things. That's obviously what was the Belgian Congo before. As you said, you've also mentioned King Leopold. All of these countries that you you sort of visit and talk about have that sort of legacy of, of colonialism, of one colonial power or another. And then that same sort of, you know, lawlessness and corruption and, and you know bribery of the police and soldiers and I mean what are the places the places that you visited which ones have sort of come out of that what are the sort of determinant factors that enables a country to come out of that better I guess I'm yeah. going to say well but yeah. well's not really the right word um, I think every, every country has its own history and yeah. the longer you spend in Africa the more you realise that the particularities of the histories are very mm. important. I think often places that, um, that were um, settler colonies, as opposed to just sort of indirect you know, rule, mm-hmm. but they, they were actually settled by uh, Western powers. I think sometimes they seem to me much more unhappy today, that there are scars that are left there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in a lot of places, if you, if you look at countries like um, those Ethiopia or, or Eritrea, Sometimes you're dealing with a very strong culture, mm-hmm. which kind of like has has just survived in a fairly robust way mm-hmm. uh, all the sort of encounters with the West. I mean, in Ethiopia, you know, you had the royal court of of Haile Selassie, and famously they were never colonised. You know, the Italians were there for five years, but they didn't really have a massive. You know, and Haile Selassie had to flee, but he came back later. And I think you're then dealing with a fairly robust culture and a strong sort of social order and uh, you know uh, rules of operating and how people feel that societies should run which haven't really been that damaged mm-hmm. by colonialism uh, and I think that that's quite important so so when you find that um, often th- these are countries that come through better I mean if you look at, at Congo Zaire it, it had this really damaging very very uh, interventionist um, colonial experience mm-hmm. And I think that then laid the groundwork for Mobutu because um, people were used to having a very oppressive form of, mm-hmm. of rule from the top. I'm Rachel Cook, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's move on to Eritrea then. Mm. So that's the subject of, of your next book, I Didn't Do It For You. And as you mentioned, Eritrea is not a place that's, that was ever regularly in the news in the West, it's uh, you know was once upon a time part of a much bigger. Well, I'll let you, you tell us the story of what Eritrea is and what happened. Well, Eritrea, I mean, I think some Eritreans would object to me saying it, but Eritrea was basically an Italian creation, and it was um, Italy's first, you know, and most treasured colony in Africa. It dates back to the 19th century, and then Mussolini went in and tried to revive it, and he wanted to use it as his launch pad into. Uh, 
into Africa and creating the Second Roman Empire. Uh, so it had a lot of money and investment poured into it by the Italians. But there was also this very strong Highlands culture. Mm-hmm. And I think what you ended up with was a um, Haile Selassie ended up swallowing it up into his uh, empire mm-hmm. after the Second World War. But there was this very distinct feeling that Eritrea was not Ethiopian. There was a lot of resentment then, an attempt by Haile Selassie to impose the Amharic language and education and sort of wipe out the vestiges mm-hmm. of this distinct personality. And that led to this long, long sort of three-decade fight for secession. And I think what the, the Eritrean story, I mean, when my book finished, it was just beginning to go sour in that the rebel movement that seized control and expel the Ethiopians, this extraordinary reversal, you know, they managed to chase one of the most powerful armies in Africa out of, uh, out of Eritrea and declare independence and had a referendum. And that then, having conducted this fantastically effective an extremely popular fight for independence, mm-hmm. struggle for independence. They then have failed to make the transition to becoming a civilian administration. And I think, you know, when I ended the book, the, I, that book went to print in 2005. I could, it was already obvious that things were going mm-hmm. off track and President Isaias Afewerki had, had arrested uh, people within his government, his most trusted aides, because they had dared to criticise him. And they've never been seen. The, they're called the Group of 15. They've never been seen since. And I think, you know, what we're seeing in Eritrea today is the continuation of that, and that he has become more and more authoritarian. Mm-hmm. The state of Eritrea has become more and more isolated, more and more militarised. And so all these youngsters that you see turning up in uh, Calais mm-hmm. or on those rickety boats that are sinking in the Mediterranean... You know, they're really trying to get away because they, their only prospect for the future in Eritrea is to do open-ended military service. And, you know, the private sector's pretty much a joke, hardly exists. There are a few... All the companies are run by the ruling party. Um, it's very difficult to do any further studies. And it's, you know, the state... It's a very authoritarian, very repressive state where every element of your life is controlled by that authority and this is not it's terribly sad because mm-hmm. this is not what the EPLF the rebel movement fought for this is what nobody wanted Eritrea to be like this you know so it's it's been a terrible disappointment and and a betrayal of what what the EPLF stood for so why did it why did it end up like that then I was going to say you know in the days when you were writing about it before this happened was it obvious it was going to go in that direction but clearly not if there was a, you know a, I think if you think about I've been thinking about that a lot and I, a lot of Eritreans you know I know are thinking about that obsessively because mm-hmm. they're trying to work out where did we go wrong yeah. whose fault is this you know why are the best and the brightest fleeing this country now uh, why are all the intellectuals you know abroad mm-hmm. all these people who were the sort of founding fathers of the EPLF uh, why are they all living in exile? And I think one of the problems is that if you're fighting a war, you do have to have a top-down military structure. Mm-hmm. You have to be effective. Uh, they used to talk a lot about collective decision-making, but actually it was a very kind of streamlined, top-down system in which an enormous amount of admiration and respect was paid to Isai Zafawerki, mm-hmm. uh, now the president, because he was the great war leader. And it was like, don't question, take orders, do as you're told. That was necessary because you won't get anywhere by having endless debates and sort of democratic decision-making processes as we know them here in the West when you're sitting in underground caves, 
you know, fighting against the Ethiopians. Mm -hmm. But, you know, once you seize power, uh, then you have to set up, cater for elections, there have never been elections in Eritrea, you have to set up ministries and give them power. You Mm -hmm. can't just set up ministries that have no power. You have to give parliament real decision-making powers. You have to have a judiciary that's independent. And none of those things have happened. I mean, all of these bodies, you know, they're just um, they're empty, empty facades, you know. Uh, and I think, you know, Eritrea's not the only place that has done this. Sure. I think Rwanda's very similar. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are military leaders who came in and sort of spouted the mantra of uh, civilian democracies. But actually, they are not capable of making that transition. And their followers didn't think it was important at the start. After all, they took over countries that were devastated by war and in Rwanda were devastated by genocide. So it was like, well, certain sacrifices have to be made. Mm -hmm. We can't sit around talking all the time. Well, the trouble is, if you do that, then you end up with... There are no checks and balances and the institutions have no credibility, all power. The last book I want to talk about before we go on to, to talk about borderline. Um, it's our turn to eat, which is about Kenya, which is a place that was much longer established, and I think was you know viewed in the West as one of the you know sort of success stories of Africa. So, well, the book is it's about Kenya, but it's obviously based around this guy John Gitonga. Yeah. So tell us who he was. He was um, a friend of mine. Um, I'd got to know him when I was a journalist because I I moved from um, Zaire to um, Kenya and to mm-hmm. Nairobi. I lived there for four years working for the Financial Times. And he was a journalist. He used to write opinion pieces in a magazine and then later a newspaper. And I befriended him. He just because he wrote very well. He mm-hmm. wrote very succinctly. He was very authoritative. He thought a lot. He was an interesting writer. And then he joined. Uh, he became the head of Transparency International, the anti-corruption. Group, uh, which actually is, has now become a very big organisation, but at that stage was sort of still in fairly early stages of its life. And he ran it, and he was very feisty, and he was standing up to the Moy regime, Daniel Arab Moy, which was a very corrupt regime, mm-hmm. which had really kind of drained away the, the, a lot of money from the public exchequer. And so he was sort of standing up to them and pointing out what was going on. Uh, did a very good job. And then when Mwai Kibaki came in in 2002-2003, they had come in on an anti-corruption platform. So they um, wanted someone who really stood for something in that world, and they appointed him. And he was uh, you know, from the right ethnic group. And I say that because that became very important mm-hmm. later on. And very, very quickly he realised that actually a whole bunch of new scandals were being um, hatched, procurement contracts, Mm -hmm. dodgy procurement contracts, all of them either military or security-related. And that all these ministers who he thought were going to be new brooms and would encourage him to Mm -hmm. investigate and sweep away the corruption of the Moy regime were actually just feathering their own nests. And they turned to him and were saying... John, you know, you're one of us, you're a, yeah. you're a Kikuyu, and, mm-hmm. you know, this is a, a Kikuyu This is um, what I was going to go, where, you know, they, they appointed him, right, yes. so what did they expect him to do? I think turn they, a blind eye to it. yeah. Would be, be a credible face, Absolutely. Could say they were doing something about it. Well, if you look at what's happened in Kenya since he, he left, he's mm-hmm. back there now, but he's gone into the NGO sector, but every single anti-corruption, ethics-related organisation, that, or any minister, I mean... Anyone who tries to clean up, what they do is they announce a whole bunch of arrest warrants. Mm-hmm. They call people in for questioning. They humiliate them in public. And then, strangely enough, nothing ever happens. They're never fined. They never sat. They sometimes will step aside from their jobs, and then they step right back in 
when everyone is thought to have forgotten about the scandal, and then never go to prison, and they never tried. And uh, so I think John was someone who, said who you know, that wasn't going to be the game he was going to play. So um, he ended up being threatened mm-hmm. repeatedly, he was getting all these death threats, and ended up fleeing the country and coming to my flat because nobody knew that we knew each other. By that stage, I was living in London. So it was really interesting because you sort of thought, wow, this is an amazing story. I mean, it's a whole personal story, but it's a story about a system. And it's also a story, what it became clear was that the corruption of Kenya, which is now, it gets worse and worse every passing year, mm-hmm. is intrinsically linked to the ethnic rivalry mm-hmm. between the various communities. Because Kenya is a country, I've never lived in a country in Africa where people are so acutely aware of which ethnic community they belong to. It is something people talk about all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's really because the whole struggle for resources and advantage and economic, a slice of the economic pie is all seen as depending on which ethnic community you belong to. And so the fact that John was a Kikuyu meant that he was expected to keep quiet because his Mm -hmm. people his community were eating. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the, the phrase, title, that's the title. Yeah, yeah, it's our turn to eat. That's the phrase you hear a lot. Mm-hmm. You don't only hear it in Kenya, you hear it in Uganda and Tanzania, but you hear it all the time in Kenya. And so I just thought it was a really interesting story. So it was a, it was a, it was a good one to tell because it was real and it was you know, very agonising for him, the choices he ended up having to make. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Michaela Rong and we've been talking about Africa more generally but now we're going to talk about her, her new novel, Borderline. So Michaela, I guess the, the obvious question is why a novel now? It was about reaching a different audience I suppose. It was partly about frustration but also reaching a different audience mm-hmm. because I've built up a certain kind of audience with my non-fiction book and I know that audience and I love it <laughs> of course because it buys my books and it's a, it's a very canny audience It's a well-read audience. It's both African and international. Uh, And I never want to lose that audience. But when I started writing, what I hoped to do was to reach, you know, to a wider audience. I wanted to reach people who would never in their wildest dreams buy a book on Africa Mm -hmm. and who have no idea of the issues and all the things that I've spent my life writing about Mm -hmm. never have occurred to them and just they would be drawn in by a story. And I think I've really tried to do that in my non-fiction by making them as lively as possible, as accessible as possible. But you know, there are a lot of people who will never buy a non-fiction book, and they will instead buy fiction books. Mm -hmm. And they will get to understand and to know about the situation and the dilemmas and, you know, in certain parts of the world that affect millions and millions of people 
through fiction, and they'll only do it in that way. And I think that was um, that was why, basically. I mean, for example, I don't know if, if you admire John le Carre. Mm-hmm. I've read his... I understood how a spy system works by reading John le Carre. Mm-hmm. I understood a lot about how the Soviet Union worked by reading his books. You know, I think you can get insights through fiction, mm-hmm. but no amount of well-written non-fiction can give you. So that it was about that. And we talked about... Eritrea and the the trials of Eritrea becoming its own. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary separating from Ethiopia and I mean, another similar place would be South Sudan seceding from Sudan and indeed this is this is what this book is about it's, yeah. it's a fictional African state and it's called Borderlines it's based around the border dispute what were the, the real life situations that particularly inspired it? When I was doing my non-fiction book about Eritrea I, I think I, I don't know, I think I read about three paragraphs about it in the book because there was so much other stuff to write about. Mm-hmm. But the boundary dispute between um, Eritrea and Ethiopia that ended up being decided in The Hague uh, really, really interested me. Mm-hmm. And I followed it in quite some detail. And I remember talking to some of the lawyers who were working on that case and they were, you know, and how... Because it sort of ties in with my other interest, which is the International Criminal Court, which is, I think, often the West in Africa presents um, universal justice in the case of the International Criminal Court and arbitration and the legal system Mm -hmm. and Western legal systems as an answer to the problems on the ground. So, you know, in Kenya, the International Criminal Court was supposed to deal with a problem of impunity, ethnic cleansing, war crimes, rape, uh, and all of those Mm -hmm. issues. And it's having a really dodgy time, a really ropey time. And I felt... Having seen what happened with Eritrea and Ethiopia in The Hague, that basically you had this dispute went to arbitration, which is what everyone recommended. You know, the UN was saying this to the Eritreans and Ethiopians, stop fighting, go to arbitration. Kofi Annan, you know, the Americans, the Brits, everyone was telling them, sort this out through international arbitration, don't Mm -hmm. sort it out on the battleground. And then they did that. And nothing has been resolved because there was a ruling that Mm -hmm. found in Eritrea's favour and Ethiopia happened to be in occupation of that part of the uh, territory, the area around the village of Badne. And Ethiopia found it unacceptable 
Um, the Ethiopian regime probably found it unacceptably humiliating mm. to have basically won and triumphed on the battlefield, but then being told by a, a boundary commission sitting in The Hague that they were in the wrong legally. And so they haven't respected it. They haven't pulled back their troops. That area is still under Ethiopian occupation. International law is being violated every single day. And in this, the Eritrean government has always been in the right and no one in the international community ever wants to discuss this issue mm-hmm. or ever puts pressure on the Ethiopians to observe this. It was supposed to be a final and binding ruling, and nobody ever asks or pressures the Ethiopians to observe that final mm-hmm. and binding ruling. So you sort of look at that and you think, well, arbitration really doesn't solve anything. If anything, it's made the situation worse. Because it would have been better in the grander scheme of things if this ruling had gone against Eritrea, mm. and then they would have accepted that they'd lost control of that area anyway, and that would it, and then the border would have been demarcated, and the uh, the whole kind of militarization of Eritrea would have been less likely because one of the reasons that the president always uses for militarizing his society is well you know, look, part of our territory is being occupied by Ethiopian troops. We Mm -hmm. have to be ready for anything. So I looked at that situation, and then there was something similar but different that happened in Abye in in Sudan, Mm -hmm. where you have a town that, in an oil-rich area, which there's one... It goes to to be decided in in The Hague, and the first ruling finds that um, Abye belongs to South Sudan, Mm -hmm. And basically, the Khartoum government says, no, 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 we can't accept that. And then suddenly, you know, the whole thing is re-discussed, re-debated, and there's a new ruling that finds that it's actually, Abye um, belongs to the north. And you kind of go, well, how come there's two such different rulings? So that was also a very strange and not particularly cheering episode. And then finally, there's another example of... Uh, the Bakassi Peninsula, Nigeria mm. and Cameroon have been at loggerheads over that. You know, that's gone to Cameroon and Nigeria seems to be respecting that in fact, although they've rejected it officially. Uh, and you just sort of think, actually, arbitration isn't the great panacea to these mm-hmm. problems. In fact, I think it can make things worse. And that, that was really what one of the lessons I wanted to be conveyed by my book, which is if you have applying cold legal terms and rules and legislation... To, to these thorny problems on the ground often doesn't, doesn't sort things out at all. And also in the background, and again, I don't want to give away too much of what happens in the book, but you've also got people like you know, the US State Department or whatever care about what the outcome is um, in ways that are not necessarily to the, you know, to the benefit of the people who live in either. Yeah. either well, absolutely. I mean, I think in a way that that era in which uh, you know, we were in the post-Cold War era mm-hmm. and uh, we, we could start caring about universal justice and uh, all of that is, is now over because effectively... You know, the fight against Islamic fundamentalism has, has now replaced the Cold War. And, you know, the West is only interested in regimes that are going to be uh, friendly in that fight and, and you know, allies. And, uh, and we'll, we'll be very cynical in pursuit of that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think, yeah, I mean, that's one of the lessons of the book as well, which is people may spout out about uh, universal justice, and, but actually real politique mm-hmm. does always matter much more. But also in a way that's not as cynical as that, but is still incredibly problematic. I mean, South Sudan is a place that, you know, we all know about now because George Clooney's bothered about it. Yes. 
Yes. So then that means that you know there is that one particular place gets a you know a, a huge amount of of sort of focus. I mean that's obviously that's an interesting story in itself. What sort yes. of happened in in South Sudan? But it's there, there are places that for almost like arbitrary reasons get the focus above another place. Yes, the the places that interest the the film stars. <laughs> <laughs> um, so well, that's the. The sort of background to, to what mm, the novel's about, yes, but let's talk yes. about what the well, novel's about. Well, I mean, that makes it sound rather dry. I'm always worried that when I say it, because, I mean, as I said, the whole point is to make people read about this. Yeah. And so it's a personal story, and it's, um, you know, it's a tragic love story. Uh, it's about a very damaged individual, young woman, who goes out there to work as a mm-hmm. lawyer for, for the government uh, in North Dara, as I call it. And, uh, and I, you know, I think she's an interesting character. Mm-hmm. I think she's, um, she's quite feisty. She's abrasive. Um, she's got all sorts of secrets and scars of her own. And I hope that, you know, while I'm unveiling the kind of mm-hmm. niceties of what happens in a court case in The Hague, that also you're discovering interesting things about her, her relationships, all the friendships she forms with people in uh, North Dara. So this is Paula. Yes. And, I mean, I wanted to talk about the, just the idea of, again, she's, a, a, she's an English lawyer yeah. and working for an American law firm and we'll talk about why she she is talking to into going to africa but again a lot of this book is a a sort of critique of the the involvement of western mm. people yes. in in africa i mean i can't be a coincidence that she's called paula shackleton as well no. which is a great sort of <laughs> colonial hero name absolutely yeah no absolutely i mean it's um it's an explorer's name, mm-hmm. and she is um, she's an explorer, and she explores and discovers a lot of things. Uh, I quite like the name Paula because um, I think she's quite um, someone says somewhere in the book you're quite macho, and uh, she's quite a brave, you know, and she is quite feisty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I quite like these names like Alex Paula that are a little bit masculine. Mm-hmm. But yes, yeah, Shackleton was a deliberate choice. Yes, <laughs> but I mean, of course, uh, on that. Same thing, and we talked about this a little bit in the first half as well. But of course, you know, you're a you're a white Western woman mm. yourself who's an expert. I'm doing yeah, you know, the, um, yeah. the air quotes. Yes. Um, so, I mean, how comfortable are you with that? Well, I wanted to make those points mm. because um, I think it's it's uh, you meet a lot of Western expatriates mm. who are working in Africa, and at certain times, I have ended up wondering if. There seemed to be a higher rate of sort of problems with these people. <laughs> Either they were, you know, alcoholics or sort of fleeing something mm-hmm. or, or, or really quite people who were borderline personalities. And, you know, they were definitely drawn to Africa because, well, sometimes they were drawn for very unsavoury reasons because they could live the high life and mm-hmm. have servants and, you know, uh, sit around getting drunk all day and have young uh, mistresses, very attractive women uh, that they would never be able to attract living in in Britain or Mm -hmm. or France or wherever. But I think also there's an element of people running away. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I use the phrase several times uh, in the book, running away to Africa. You know, I mean, it's like running away to the Foreign Legion. Mm -hmm. And, And the point is that... Africa is not, it's not always that grateful for the, those arrivals. You know, there is a mm-hmm. tendency to think, oh, well, you know, people will be grateful for my skills and my knowledge. And, you know, and it's sort of, especially as, as so many Africans now are 
extremely well educated mm-hmm. and have all sorts of complex skills that they've sometimes acquired in the West, but you know, university education is getting a lot better in Africa. And there's they, the numerous characters in the book make that point about sort of yeah. Western idealists coming over to yeah. Africa because they're damaged and feeling well, that they can help. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I sort of whenever I see pictures of um, Tory MPs or, or American volunteers digging latrines mm-hmm. somewhere in you know, Rwanda or Tanzania or somewhere, you sort of think, I think you'll find that people can dig their own latrines, you know, and the idea that you're going, you're doing people a favour, and it's sort of like, they don't need latrines, Mm -hmm. you know, they can do that themselves. In fact, a lot of the stuff that you think you're offering, which is so priceless, is not that useful. And and you are taking jobs from locals. That's mm-hmm. the other issue that you have to bear in mind. No, so, and this is the thing. Now, I mean, people yeah. are you know there are tumblers and things like websites with photographs of aid workers with yeah. African babies and stuff. Oh, you know, I think this is a thing, a thing that we're, people yeah. are quite sort of. Uh, oh yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, to be honest, I've slightly got <laughs> sick of sneering at these people because there's so much of it. Um, you know, what is it? There's one that is what what aid workers like. There's a whole website dedicated to what aid workers like. Mm-hmm. And then there's also another website called uh, Africa is a Country. And really about, you know, 60% of the entries are, are concerned with sneering at white people who go and work in Africa. And I've reached a stage where actually having sort of chortled along with it, I'm now kind of like, okay, it's boring now. <laughs> there's so much of it. Paula does go, she is well, she thinks, away from something. She thinks she's better than that mm-hmm. because she thinks she's quite cynical and that she's not the kind of type that would ever go and hand out high-protein biscuits in a refugee camp. And she's taking her legal skills, mm-hmm. which are rare, and you know the country she's going to doesn't have them. And so she feels she's taking something there that's of genuine interest. And I think at the end, you know, she has a big row with a friend who basically points out that she's not that different mm-hmm. from all the other damaged goods that end up in Africa. And, um, and she's not doing Africans half as much of a favour as she thinks she is. And that's also the, the great sort of, um, because things do go wrong in The Hague, and, and all those skills and that expertise has sort of been to no end, you mm-hmm. know. So I think, you know, she, she thinks she's, she's smart and she's... She's, she's quite superior. I mean, she, she thinks she's on a higher plane, but actually by the end she realises she's just like everyone else. And actually, that, that, I want to talk about the character that has that argument with her at the end. The other sort of major character in the book is Winston Peabody, so tell us who he is. Uh, well, the character who sort of says, you know, we've had enough of your damaged goods is um, Dalit. Mm. So he's a local Dararian, if we're going to call them, North Dararian. <laughs> but, um, but Winston, I think, remains an idealist to the end her boss and um, he's an African American and I think African Americans often engage with Africa in a very passionate and uh, idealistic way that it's in a, another level of engagement. So tell us, give us a bit more about who Winston is and what he, he's a, he's a very vividly painted character, yeah. I like Winston a lot. Well yeah, he, yes, it's, I like him too, he's comes from, you know, he's an African American, he comes from an underprivileged, his mother was a cleaner, uh, he sort of earned his spurs, his legal spurs in, in government, uh, and then ended up work, working for a rich white partner. He was the sort of first black partner in Washington. And, um, and realised that actually a lot of advice he was giving, because he was giving, you know, he was an expert on the corrupt, so the Foreign Corrupt Practices mm-hmm. Act, and he was giving a lot of experts to clients who were basically trying to work out how they can pay bribes abroad without, um, you know, without then being penalised in the States. And he has a sort of crisis of conscience and at that stage reaches a deal with his colleagues and says, well, you know, I want to do a lot of pro bono work and goes out to, uh, to 
to Africa to do pro bono work and ends up working on these boundary mm-hmm. disputes in, and representing these um, African governments in The Hague. So he's extremely idealistic, and he's also a bit ruthless. I mean, I think in his heart of hearts, he's probably a Marxist, Mm -hmm. in that he really feels that in the greater good, a lot of personal sacrifices can, or, you know, um, rather unpleasant government actions can be excused, because... You know, the main thing is to get that boundary demarcated. Mm-hmm. And, and in that cause, pretty much anything the government does is justified. So he's a certain type that you meet. And I think you, you often meet this type because it's, it's people who think, well, you know... I, I, I think a lot of aid officials are like that. And they'll say, yeah, we're giving a lot of aid money to this completely corrupt or very authoritarian and repressive African government, but... But, you know, this is a long, slow haul, and in mm-hmm. the end, it'll be worth it. And I always think, well, mm, that's quite a difficult judgment to make. He's also, I mean, he described him there as something of a Marxist, but he's also quite a flamboyant character. And that yes. So sort of the vividness in which you draw his, his quite amazing dress sense as a great scene where he argues <laughs> with Paula over, um, over the prominence of some shirts, yeah. Um, made me think that he was he was he drawn from a real life example. Um, that scene is actually based on a friend of mine. Um, I think it's OCD you would describe that as, um, who's very very particular about his shirts and exactly what kind of weave and uh, cloth is and, and texture is used. Yeah, you know, you borrow from everywhere when you're writing. I mean, this is a great joy of fiction, that you mm. kind of think that he's going to have that character trait. Yeah, he's a bit of a dandy. Uh, he's, he's quite vain. I'm Caitlin Doty. Check out the growing Little Adams media empire at littleadams.com. How did you find writing a novel then as opposed to the, the three works of, of non-fiction? I think it's very liberating. I mean, it's great fun. You have much more fun with it. But I found it extremely difficult to work out where to draw the line between what was going to be real and what was going to be invented. Mm-hmm. Like the whole decision of whether or not to call this North Duran, Duran or something else or was it going to use real town names and then what about people's names I mean mm-hmm. one decision leads to another leads to another those decisions were really agonisingly difficult and I still don't know if I got them right and I found it, it was just a different way of writing because if you're dealing with facts you're sort of you select your facts, mm-hmm. you know you've got to create a narrative, you can't just describe everything that happens so you sort of go, well, this is that, that story developed in that way. So there's still a bit of creativity in non-fiction, mm-hmm. but you are still constrained by the facts. And I think when it's fiction, there's this, there's this glorious freedom, but you can say anything. And then there's that moment where you have a sort of like, well, what on earth, where do you start? Because you're so free. What I used to find is um, that if I could imagine the scene in my head, then it was very easy to write. But until I could imagine it in my head... I couldn't write it at all. Whereas with non-fiction, you just, you know, you can just basically put down the, the timeline of facts mm-hmm. is your skeleton in a way, and you can work around that. And so, I mean, it's only been out for a week. Yeah. But at this point, I, you know, would you would you do it again? I would, but I wouldn't. I think I'd try and do something simpler. But I've mm-hmm. said that with every book I've ever written, because this was supposed to be a simple story, and it just ended up becoming quite multi-layered because I wanted to... I have a tendency to sort of draw in more and more themes, so there's also the sort of diary of this colonial policeman, you know, back in the 1940s and 50s. 
Um, and I wanted to weave that in because I thought colonialism was such an important part of the story. Mm-hmm. I wanted to give that flavour. And, you know, it just... Um, the structure became quite unwieldy and, and quite difficult to manage. And I think uh, next time I'd try and do a much simpler structure. I mean, something we haven't even talked about, really, in the, in the first part when we talk about Africa more widely is just that, I guess, the concept of borders is... You know, that's mm. the thing that well, so many of those borders... You see Africa on a map and there are those straight lines, borders that yeah. have just been imposed on the country by yeah. colonial powers as yeah. well. Well, I think that was one of the one of the issues I was tussling with and as I was writing the book that I kept thinking, do people in this area where I'm describing, how aware are they of their own nationality? How mm. deep does that feeling go of, you know, I'm this nationality or I'm that nationality? Because, of course, that's, that's yeah. what it's all about. And I ended up thinking that, you know, I mean, basically it's, it's, it's a moving concept. And that's why I have a couple of people who say contradictory things in the book. Yeah. Like at one stage there's some old men who say, we all, we've always known who we are. Mm-hmm. We've always known that we, you know, we're not, you know, our neighbours across the river, they're not the same as us and we, we don't want to have anything to do with them. And you've got to go to The Hague and make sure everyone understands that. But then there's a sort of whole exchange with a a bandit up in the hills in the 1940s who has that discussion with a colonial officer. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't care which nationality he is as long as he can continue to, <laughs> to rob the trucks going through the valley. And he really doesn't care. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said, just as long as people leave me alone, I don't care which nationality I'm supposed to be. And then, you know, and then you have a situation in which two countries are claiming that it's absolutely obvious which nationality people are. Uh, on their side of the border Mm -hmm. and these things change over time and uh, particularly in those parts of Africa that we're talking about they they haven't always been set in stone at all right to um, to finish up can I get you to read a little bit of the book yes just to set the scene I mean this is um this is the first proper trip that Paula does with Abraham who is her driver and her colleague and she's been sent out by Winston Peabody her boss to collect testimony from some refugees in an IDP camp an internally displaced camp which is all going to be part of the evidence that is presented in The Hague to support the memorial that they're, they're pulling together um, so here we go By the time we reached transit camp Easton, number three, the air conditioning was working as furiously as the heater had a few hours earlier. Abraham parked outside the gates, and as he switched off the ignition, I realised that the metallic buzzing I'd assumed to be generated by the engine was part of the great outdoors, a chorus of cicadas. I took a slow breath, quietly dreading what lay ahead, then reluctantly opened the door. The heat was absurd. I laughed in disbelief, waited instinctively for the assault to pass, then realised it never would. The sweat glands in my armpits and groin began to prickle. Where first? I asked Abraham. The camp administrator, Sammy. I remember him from the front, a funny man, good singer. So we called him Sammy Davis Jr. He will know everything. Not you in HCR? I asked, pointing to what was clearly the refugee agency's office. An air-conditioned container, a small mountain of empty water bottles had collected next to it. To be polite? Abraham grunted in scorn. Their job is to hand out tents. That's all they know how to do. And we do not need to be polite. If the UN had done its job in the first place, we would not be in this mess. Winston said that whatever happens, we should try to avoid accepting a meal. I've got some packed lunches. Winston's exact words had been, Personally, I find it mortifying to see a refugee family slaughtering their prized goat to fatten a well-fed Westerner. Abraham shrugged. We can try. 
We will fail. Hospitality is part of our culture. These people have nothing, but they will insist on sharing that nothing with us. The administrator's tent was at the camp's high point, the path to its door marked with whitewashed rocks, and a row of lovingly watered oleanders planted in recycled cooking oil tins. To the north we could glimpse the molten coast, a biscuit-coloured blur. To the south stretched the IDP camp. A blue haze of wood fire rose above a giant pixelated canvas of blue and white rectangles, a gaudy mosaic whose tarpaulin surreally brought to mind funfairs and candy floss. It gave off a rich, steady murmur. It was the sound, I realised, that all cities would produce if traffic was removed. A complex, constant hum, which contained within it the metallic clink of saucepans being washed, the comforting pock of wood being chopped, the bleat of goats, barking dogs, babies wailing, adult chat, burst of laughter. I felt my tense, hunched shoulders relaxing, of course. How melodramatic of me. An IDP camp was just another type of community. Your first refugee camp? asked Abraham. Yes. How does it seem? I expected worse, to be honest. Squalor, wailing, that sort of thing. I gave an embarrassed laugh. Losing your home doesn't mean you lose your dignity. So I see. It seems very well organised. Big, though, makes clear the disruption the war caused. They've kept the original villages intact, Abraham said, and my eyes followed his finger. This was an emergency city with distinct neighbourhoods, the tents arranged not in functional rows but in clusters. All the camps are like this. It's easier that way. Everyone knows who is who and what their role is, and it means when the word comes they are ready to go back. Go back, I thought. They would only go back if we won the case. Inside the tent a small delegation was waiting, drinking tea and fanning themselves with UNHCR registration forms. Under the tarpaulin, the shade smelt of old rubber and was as hot as soup, but at least it was shade. Abraham and Sammy leaned in to one another, bumped shoulders and patted and held one another in a comradely way that I guess represented recognition of shared battlefield experience. The rest of us made do with respectful murmurs and rapid intakes of breath. I was trying to work out why my handshake with Sammy had felt slightly peculiar when he reached to scratch an eyebrow. Two fingers were missing. He noticed my glance and held out a maimed hand, showing pink stubs. I was too slow throwing a grenade. Not this war, the last one. It's been a long time since I could blow my nose. Your colleague told us yesterday that you wanted to interview people from Sanasa, he said. Most of the IDPs come from there, so you will not be short of any candidates. In fact, you could talk to anyone here, added a bearded young man in a blue and white checked shirt. He had introduced himself as George, the camp doctor. That's wonderful, I said, quailing inside. Large, damp crescents had formed under each arm, and as I reached for my Fanta, I could feel the wet flesh separate and glue itself back together. Maybe we should start. I don't want to waste your time. Oh, don't worry about that. The one thing IDPs have plenty of is time. Your visit is the most exciting thing to happen in the camp this week. A gaggle of children had already gathered at the tent's door flap, mouths open in wonder. One tiny girl, a small finger exploring a nostril, was wearing what must have once been a Western housewife's cocktail dress, which dropped to her ankles and fell open at the side. The boys, whose heads had been shaved to leave a single central forelock, wore oversized shorts belted with packing twine. Sammy swirled and barked at them, and they fled, squealing. Even as he turned to face me again, they were edging back into the frame, playing an undeclared game of grandmother's footsteps. Silence fell. 
and I realised that everyone in the tent was looking expectantly at me, waiting for the day's entertainment to start. We're going to have to talk to each person one-on-one, I'm afraid. We can't do group interviews. No problem, said Sammy. You will have all the privacy you need. He began issuing orders, and soon plastic chairs were being unstacked, a folding table erected. I'll go and check the catering arrangements. You'll be staying for a meal, of course. I exchanged looks with Abraham, who refused to rescue me. Um, my mind was racing. Uh, I'm afraid I don't eat meat. You don't eat meat? Sammy looked incredulous. That sounds very unhealthy. You'll change your mind when you see how our women prepare it. A few minutes later, I heard a piteous bleating and caught a glimpse through the tent flap of a hobbled white kid being led to its fate. I've been talking to Michaela Wrong. We've been talking in the main about her new novel, Borderlines, which is out now from Faulty State. So, Michaela, thank you very much for coming in and telling us about it. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunched website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.